This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Revolution in the Air, 60s Radicals Turned to Lenin, Mao, and Che by Max Elbaum, with a foreword by Alicia Garza. This is the new edition of the first in-depth study of the long march of the U.S. New Left after 1968. The 60s were a time when radical movements learned to embrace 20th century Marxism. Revolution in the Air is the definitive study of this turning point and examines what the resistance of today can learn from the legacies of Lenin, Mao, and Che. It tells the story of the new communist movement, which was the most racially integrated and fast-growing movement on the left. Thousands of young activists, radicalized by the Vietnam War and Black Liberation, and spurred on by the Puerto Rican, Chicano, and Asian American movements, embraced a third-world-oriented version of Marxism. These admirers of Mao, Che, and Almakar Cabral organized resistance to the Republican majorities of Ford and Nixon. By the 1980s, these groups had either collapsed or become tiny shards of the dream of a Maoist world revolution. Taking issue with the idea of a division between an early good 60s and a later bad 60s, Max Elbaum is particularly concerned to reclaim the lessons of the new communist movement for today's activists, who, like their 60s predecessors, are coming of age at a time when the left lacks mass support and is fragmented along racial lines. Revolution in the Air, 60s Radicals Turned to Lenin, Mao, and Che by Max Elbaum, with a foreword by Alicia Garza. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. James Comey is Liberal America's favorite cop, and now, as a result, a best-selling author as well. At The Baffler, writer Patrick Blanchfield just wrote a review of Comey's book, A Higher Loyalty, Truth, Lies, and Leadership. The book, of course, is mostly awful, but it's awful in productively revealing ways. Comey has become an icon of the liberal fetishization of the national security state as a bulwark against Trumpism, when, in fact, it's that very national security state and its rampant abuses that are deeply implicated in Trump's rise. The elevation of police as a model of duty and leadership contrasted against Trump's vulgar monstrosities, renders invisible not only why Trump is president, but why he is so dangerous. Before we get rolling, it's my duty to inform you that it's our spring fundraising drive. We are on track to meet our goal of 1,000 supporters at patreon.com slash the dig. But we need your support to get there and to ensure the long-term financial viability of this podcast. Anything helps. We put tons of work into every show and then give it away for free. So we depend on your voluntary support. Plus, we've got goodies for you. $5 a month gets you my new weekly newsletter with reading tips from me and from my guests to help you 
dig deeper into topics discussed on the show. $10 a month or more, and I'll send you a copy of Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism. $20 a month or more, and I'll send you a bunch of books from left-wing authors at Verso, the University of California Press, and more. So please take a moment, if you haven't already, and make a contribution at patreon.com slash the dig. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. Thanks very much, and here's my interview with Patrick Blanchfield, a freelance writer and associate faculty member at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research, who you may remember from two past interviews on this show, one on the book Fire and Fury, and the other on neoliberalism and the culture and political economy of guns. Patrick Blanchfield, welcome back to The Dig. Oh, hi. It's a pleasure to be on again. You write that that Comey's book is about leadership and how leadership is something he is really good at doing. What is this idea of leadership that Comey is so enthralled to? Well, I mean, I think the first thing to stipulate is that it's an awesome grift, right? Uh, (laughs) Insofar as he can talk about a concept that is going to allow him to basically give the same series of motivational talks or like, you know, like business seminar consulting shit everywhere from the Aspen Ideas Festival to like Ted, the Ted talk coming near you to like, God knows what, like, this is his ticket for it. Right. Like he's going to like, like, so, so, so if, if, He's going to stand as a business guru consultant for that. So that's we're going to be hearing about his name in conjunction with, with leadership. <laughs> maybe if he's lucky, maybe if he's lucky, even an appearance on Yasha Munk's podcast. <laughs> be awesome. I mean, like, it, and it's going to be like, it, it, so he's going to do like corporate CEO thought leader stuff, right? But like, that's like, so, so like, just put that on the table. That's what his vector <laughs> is here. He's he's he already has a great deal of money from. I believe from the time that he uh, worked for, as a defense contractor and all the other stuff between doubts in Washington. Uh, but yeah, this is, this is good. This is his ticket going forward. And you know, um, I guess someone's doing well. Uh, it's, 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 but, but the other thing that leadership does for him is it, it allows him to write this. It, it's, the, it's nominally the organizing theme for this entire book, right? Whenever any individual comes along, he can eat a, eat a you know, the, the grocery store, manager that he worked under as a child and like these very like Frank Capra, it's a lot of wonderful life segments to mafia dons to, you know, other people in Washington, district attorneys, attorney generals, whatever. He can always pause and evaluate them as from, from the moral rubric of are they good leaders or not? Uh, so that, that's like, that's how he, that's the organizing frame for how he narrates the scope of his entire life. And it's a particularly canny move because this means also like, you know, implicitly, we're thinking about him as a leader the entire time, right? How is he going to manage the FBI, et cetera? But also, we're always thinking about the person who is the reason why anyone buys this book in the first place, namely the leader of the free world, Donald Trump. So <laughs> even when he's talking about, like, the dude yelling, like, like this dude in New Jersey yelling at him, or rather not yelling at him for spilling a whole lot of milk in a, in a grocery store refrigerator, we're being like, wow, this guy, this grocery store manager reminds me of Donald Trump. Or like, you know, it's a mafia don testifying about slitting people's throat. We're like, oh, this guy kind of like resembles Donald. So it's a, Trump is it's constantly a sort of n- negatively or positively prefigured, though I guess not by name until later in the book or, or by name. We get we we 
get a little bit of a – I think we, his name may be dropped early. Like there's, there's this sort of like well, – I should, I should put it on the table. James Comey is extremely online. Like just like there is so like <laughs> a, like he's clearly super on Twitter even before like obviously now he doesn't post that much but he was there secretly but like I say this because like the book begins with him in like this armored SUV speeding towards some congressional hearing or another in the waning waning weeks of his you know of his tenure as FBI director under Donald Trump and he's he's on his way to testify about some shit or whatnot and then literally he does their record scratch like how did I get here and you're like okay this is exactly what this book is going to be like uh like there are moments where it, it, it almost feels like and then there are these like you know these like sly foreshadowings about people being tacky or overbearing or like there are real moments in this book where you're like oh if yeah if a wag had written had wanted to write like a like you know like, but that's the time that people on twitter people share screenshots of like fake <laughs> books like, like, like this sort of like spoil like i can't believe that you know like this is in the new kanye book and like they write something like satirically over the top there are moments in this book that actually were written like by james comey that read like a parody come up with by some asshole online uh speaking of him being extremely online i think before we get any farther you have to mention what comey's undercover twitter handle was yeah he was reinhold Niebuhr. um or it's like Ed Niebuhr or whatever. <laughs> Niebuhr is, is the, the liberal Protestant theologian and who is beloved by men. It's one of the, I, can say, I keep on coming across Niebuhr, and I, I read a lot of these political memoirs for work and out of masochism, and I keep on coming across people who uh, – people seem to go to Niebuhr for a lot of things. Uh, uh, for example, John McCain has a lot on Niebuhr, and uh, Niebuhr, who he thinks would have supported the decision to invade Iraq, uh, which I find a little doubtful, but uh, independent of that, you still have this this weird way in which this one theologian keeps on showing up as basically this sort of like court cleric or something to a certain vision of American power. Uh, and that's and that's I should actually say something else here, like vis-a-vis this idea of leadership. Part of the reason why leadership is such an attractive um, frame Right, is because it, it has this, these airs of agency and of decisiveness and of reflection. Uh, when in reality, what this book is much more about is compromise, <laughs> complicity, and evasion. But but if it's framed as leadership, then it's you know there's a whole implicit ideology of moral action that underwrites this entire book. And I hope we get a chance to talk about that. So is this a piece of of this? kind of technocratic anti-politics that we saw, say, with the 2016 primary with the Clinton camp's argument that Bernie didn't have the expertise to be a leader? Um, or is it something different and more personalistic? Well, it's 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 weird. Like, I, and I've actually spent, I've been trying to think this out because, like, there are ways in which, like, there's a lot of what's on the table in this book are these, and this is, like, implicitly you know, it's it's there implicitly, but also explicitly about the way he talks about like the mafia versus the FBI. Right? He's reaching to these these very um, uh, classic American tropes of individuals who just are you know are, are steeped in the life of either being good or bad. Right? So it's not like a necessarily intellectually technocratic thing in that way, but there is this way of like these people. Some people have certain roles. And this is what this is what they choose to be, and there are their actions. And then, of course, the book is peppered with little quotes from, you know, various legal figures and various Supreme Court justices, but also like Herman Hesse and fucking Al Pacino from The Godfather. <laughs> like, there's some weird like so so, so like it, it, it's schlocky and kitschy, but it, it, it's not like technocratic in the same way. Though I think he absolutely is a technocrat. Uh, 
what, what seems to be more interesting in terms of like the philosophy here, or what seems like, like the structure of it, is this weird. Here, I'll, I'll give you an example before I'll, I'll like flesh it out. Right, one of the things that Comey talks about is his exquisite consciousness of the wrongdoing on the part of the FBI vis-a-vis Martin Luther King. Right, and and as we as as, as we may as we may. As we likely know, but it's worth refreshing. The FBI under J. Edgar Hoover mounted uh, for for a decade or more a, a intensive, frequently entirely illegal, but sometimes quite legal, and co-signed by Bobby Kennedy, um, surveillance, shadowing, disruption, and other types of operation against civil rights leaders. That included against Martin Luther King, inserting um, various recording devices. Devices throughout places where he stayed and recording conversations with, uh, I think, maybe even his lawyer because this was a communist influence, but also tape recording Martin Luther King having sex. Uh, and then sending poison pen, anonymous poison pen letters trying to uh, basically threatening to release these uh, yeah. to, and trying to get Martin Luther King to kill himself. Comey has this, Comey's printed this out, this letter, one of these, and has it on his desk. Uh, and he thinks about it a lot, and he said also that, you know, one of the things that he does is he makes all his new FBI hires, after a certain point, they have to take all his diversity classes, and then I think that they go to, like, the MLK Memorial or something, or some museum or something like that. But in any event, they, in the end, have to write a personal essay about Martin Luther King and, and what it means for them or some other shit like this, right? Oh, God. So, yeah, it's it's really so 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 as that as that sort of like vignette kind of suggests here, um, and also he basically said, and the other thing he says is is that like well the reason after, the reason J Edgar Hoover didn't do this did, did all these things he basically says is because there were insufficient checks and balances in terms of feedback within the FBI as an organization because basically there weren't subordinates. It was a lack of institutional norms. That's exactly right. That's and and and, and, and so not even really values. People weren't. Does he Jagger Hoover exist in this closed circuit of people just giving him what he wanted to hear and people flattering him? He hinted this is also all about Trump. But like, but, but Comey says that if you know if someone had just decided to produce, if there had been a more horizontal model of communication in the FBI, then someone would have told Jagger Hoover maybe we shouldn't try and drive Martin Luther King to kill himself. Right. So, so like, so what's there is a as though the purpose of the FBI wasn't always about maintaining certain types of stability and quashing things like the civil rights movement. So, so what this did to get at your specific question about like, what's the idea of leadership or whatnot and, and, and how that fl- like plays into technocracy. So on the one hand, there's clearly a exquisite awareness on the part of Comey as to communication dynamics with organization and how management works. Right. And sort of streamlining those things and ensuring for various types of accountability within basically office environments. So like there is that awareness, but that coexists with a massive blind spot or motivated ignorance or bad faith about the, about the possibility that institutions may be fucked from the beginning and that the entire purpose of an institution may override the individual moral calculi or HR procedures of the people within it. So what this means sort of strikingly is that, and I think the whole book sort of exemplifies this, is this idea that if the, if the classic Martin Luther King line, you know, is, is that people should be judged by the content of their character and not the, the color of their skin or whatnot, Comey seems, Comey's response seems to like, here, here, yes, character is what matters most, 
But character doesn't necessarily have to translate into any sort of particularly radical or or decisive actions. In fact, character is sort of like this moral decision, like this moral disposition of self-awareness and self-criticism and like all this moralizing language to the point that actually simply just voicing your misgivings or producing a memoir in which you talk about how things are so bad that that actually recuperates and is more important than actively making them bad or participation in a structure that is invested in making them bad. So it's like, we're going to send all these FBI agents to go out and like write a personal essay about what Martin Luther King meant for them. While meanwhile, we're going to maintain the operations of an organization that stands against everything Martin Luther King fought for. And also, this is my moral gift to you. So it's like, so it's like, it's both structural, but also individually. He's like, you know, like, you know, I, yes, I okayed a lot of torture. Uh, and yes, I support surveillance in all sorts of illegal ways, but let me give you some important moral lessons about leadership. So like his, there's a way in which like character. And yes, my agent's training materials include Islamophobic materials and we surveil ordinary Muslims without any real substantive suspicion of wrongdoing. But Hey, uh, the reason J. Edgar Hoover uh, tried to convince Martin Luther King to kill himself was because of a lack of institutional norms. Exactly. And, he's like, and, and, and he even positions this as a kind of bravery, being like, well, I'm working to undo that negative leadership culture within the FBI. And the answer is like, well, no, no, fuck you. The problem is not an, is not an ethical leadership culture or a series of HR norms that aren't working. It's the fact that this institution exists to perpetuate inequality, do political subversion, and sustain structures of white supremacy. And no amount of like crypto woke, self-aware, like moralizing from the person who runs it is going to redeem that. But he seems to think it does, or that that even like precludes the question. There's a particular passage from his book that you cite that I think is pretty reflective of his inability to see institutions as problems rather than solutions. And in fact, like the solution is is total kind of principled, unprincipled fidelity to those institutions. And this is is Comey writing about prosecuting Martha Stewart when he was, um, I, I believe, in the Southern District of New York's U.S. Attorney's Office right. um, for covering yeah. up circumstances surrounding a, a stock trade. And this this passage is mind blowing. Um Comey writes, Martha Stewart, didn't, Martha Stewart didn't commit the crime of the century. At first, I found it an annoyance compared to those we were dealing with on a daily basis, cases that had a bigger impact on people's lives. But something caused me to change my mind. This case was ultimately about something higher, something more important than a rich person trying to sell some stock before it crashed. People must fear the consequences of lying in the justice system, or the system can't work. There was once a time when most people worried about going to hell if they violated an oath taken in the name of God. That divine deterrence has slipped away from our modern cultures. In its place, people must fear going to jail. They must fear their lives being turned upside down. They must fear their pictures splashed on newspapers and websites. People must fear having their name forever associated with a criminal act if we are to have a nation with the rule of law. 
<laughs> uh, I mean, uh, ho- holy shit. Comey makes yeah. the carceral state out to be our secular god, like literally. This is, if you were to look up in like, if you were to look up the phrase political theology, you would find this passage like right next to it in some way. <laughs> Philosophical, like dictionary, like, like, like he's like, yeah, I, I had to sacrifice Martha Stewart to seal social cohesion <laughs> in the light of the absence of God. Like, it's 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 fucking nuts, right? Um, and, and you know, that's he, that's the that's the one point in the book where he like really goes out and says it. Um, but what's really like, and, and there's so much at play here, right? Because like all this, all this abstract rhetoric about you know people needing to fear exposure and the importance of telling the truth. Um, that's crazy on its own, but when you realize that it's coming from the mouth of a guy who helped oversee one of the largest massive wireless surveillance programs in human history, a uh, warrantless uh, like surveillance program, like and that's people's most fundamental responsibility, according to Comey, is is vis-a-vis the state, and it's to be utterly transparent before like the state's repre- repressive apparatuses. Meanwhile, the the reality is that the machinations of of the state, especially post my nine eleven, are are run by people like Comey and shrouded in utter mystery. And the contradiction there doesn't seem to occur to him. No, it doesn't. And it, it, and this is also like when he talks about surveillance, he's like he hates the idea of surveillance because surveillance indicates the only reason surveillance exists. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. He basically says the oh, sorry uh, encryption exists. The only reason encryption exists is because someone wants to subvert a judge. Which is again talk about that. There's so, so the other weird thing here too is like this elevation of like who made Comey the judge. He sort of offers the idea that people would want to have correspondence that would be encrypted, even from the fact finding tasks of like initiatives of the state. He sort of seems to think that that's like inherently obviously immoral, and and I don't necessarily think it is. Um, but also the other thing here, and that there's a little bit of background in the Martha Stewart thing that's a little bit interesting, is that basically. He's he's he, and he relays all this agonized moral calculus that he goes through, right? And one of the things he's thinking about is, well, if I go, if I nail Martha Stewart to the wall for this, you know, fifty thousand dollars, a fairly piddling sum, um, which Martha Stewart, by the way, appears comes off as totally guilty of being just sleazy in this book, but 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 he's like, if I nail her <laughs> to the wall for this. People are going to be like, you're just going for the press. You just want to screw her. Like, there's this is bad. Like, why are you making an example of her, particularly when there are bigger like financial crimes going on that don't get prosecuted? But then also he thinks about, and he has a flashback to another episode. I think is an early, in earlier in his career as a prosecutor, where he um, he's doing an investigation into a corrupt, a corrupt politico somewhere on the East Coast who I think is an African-American mayor or some other state senator or some other local-level politician. Uh, and, he, and in the course of doing this investigation, he comes across a preacher who's involved in a local church and who has some information that will be um, involving like money laundering or something else like that. And Comey's leaning on this guy as a witness and is like, look, if you just tell the truth, we can go after the bigger fish. Uh, and you know you, you you'll be you'll be fine because you've cooperated. And Comey already knows, of course, that this guy has information and is. Um, and the preacher refuses out of loyalty or God. Who knows what the calculi are? But the preacher refuses it. And then we're left with the impression that that Comey and the FBI have destroyed this man's life. Um, and then the the, the 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 politician in question then like betrays his own underlings, etc. And everyone goes to jail. And so and Comey has this experience being like, wow, I um I you know he doesn't put it in these terms. He's like I single handedly 
destroyed the lives of all these black community leaders. Uh, and I didn't think twice about doing that. So why would I do the same? Why wouldn't I do the same for Martha Stewart? Uh, it, it's, it's morally <laughs> obscene for me to, to help to, to, to let her skate just because she's white and famous. And on the one this hand, is a principle of justice embedded of in the carceral state, you know, that, that, that you achieve justice and remedy disparities by rounding down, you know, like, oh, if white, if white people are getting uh, if white wealthy people are getting unfairly lenient treatment, then the solution isn't to give poor black people similarly lenient um, treatment. It's to give uh, wealthy white people more draconian treatment. That's justice. Yeah. Point does it seem to occur to him? Maybe we shouldn't be destroying the grinding people in the meat grinder of our criminal justice system at all. Like that, that just doesn't occur to him. He's like, well, you know, I did it. I, I, I fucked all these other people. So Martha Stewart, here come, like, prepare to meet your like, you're 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 your living God. And and then he just just you know, and it's, it, but there's it, it's so so this is the weirdness of it, right? There's all this elaborate moral hand wringing about what would I do, what wouldn't I do, what would you do? He keeps on this is, this is his moral gambit always. He's like, well, what would you do in my position? And I'm like, he, he interpolates you know, the reader. Answer, that is, yeah, constantly, and that's also what he's doing on the book, uh, like the book tour thing, when people are like, well, maybe you shouldn't have done this, or maybe you shouldn't have done that. And he's always like, well, here are my best. He, he, his 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 constant refrain is, I had nothing but good or bad, I had nothing but bad and worse options. And what would you do? And 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 of course, like there's something really stupid about putting to, to every random person, like, what if you're director of the <laughs> FBI? And I have no idea what the fuck it's like to be director of the FBI. And I just finished his goddamn book, but. On another level, the answer is don't be director of the fucking FBI in the first place, right? Uh, but again, that that like that like the the entire idea that maybe we shouldn't be you know destroying people in our criminal justice system just <laughs> doesn't seem to parse to him. It just doesn't occur to him. Um, it's unsurprising then that Comey seems like really unable to grasp what the debates are over criminal justice in the U.S. in recent years have even been about. He has this really remarkable line that you quote, law enforcement in the black community in America have long been separate parallel lines, closer in some communities, farther apart in others. But now those lines were arcing away from each other everywhere, each video depicting the death as a, of a civilian at the hands of police, driving one line away, each killing of a police officer, arcing the other line away. It, it's as though he's talking about two neighboring communities engaged in some misunderstanding-based sectarian conflict rather than this monstrously large system of racist social control that has become a defining feature of American society and that he happens to be presiding over. Like that's it, 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 there's there's a there's a really grotesque kind of both sidesism there where he's like well you know like he goes to the funeral to of one police officer or a pair of police officers who were killed uh, and he's like you know um, by that mentally ill guy in New York that, to... that sparked the uh, yeah, back turning exactly. protest against De Blasio exactly the, the, yeah the, the, the this fellow who killed his two cops in an ambush attack and claiming he did it for Eric Garner and Michael Brown and um, it. And Comey is like, well, you know, people, it's crazy out there. People are wanting to kill cops and people are, people, a couple of cops are getting killed and people are videotaping cops killing people. And I'm like, yeah, that, is, that does sound crazy when you put it like that. But when you consider that the number of cops killed in America in any given year is in the low dozens uh, and that that's at 
uh, one of the lowest. That's been consistently record lows for, for, for well over a decade, whereas meanwhile, we have no idea how many civilians cops kill, and it's easily at minimum a thousand, then maybe that both sides kind of gesture is not is a little bit weird coming from a guy in a position of power. Uh, and then, and then, of course, where he he he, what he does with this is he then goes on to say, and this is all within the context of a conversation with Barack fucking Obama in the goddamn White House, uh, to be like, you know, I don't think the phrase mass incarceration is accurate, and actually, I think it's super offensive, um, because we don't set out to incarcerate people on mass, and also people or people are char- arrested, charged, and sentenced individually. Uh, and so there's nothing mass about it. It's all, all very, you know, it's all personally tapered. It, it, it's artisanal, car, the carceral state. And it's like, you, you, you note that he, cru- you note that he crucially omits the trial step between between representation and, and conviction in describing this yeah, individual, this, per, this perfectly individualistic process of individual people being punished for the acts of individual crimes. Exactly. And, 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 where, and, and, and of course, this is the point in which like, it's clearly that Comey isn't just a dupe, but that he's actually being super squirrely and sleazy, right? Because like, he, he, the dude was formerly a prosecutor, he was formerly a district attorney general, and formerly head of the FBI. He knows full well that nearly 97% of all people who come before a federal case plea out before the trial phase. But he removes that. And, he's also, and also, we have an enormous and monstrous system of mandatory minimums in this country. So those are not individually tailored, like, bespoke fucking verdicts. Like, no, people get eaten up by that, too. But he doesn't, he, he doesn't allude to any of those things. Um, he just presents himself as having, like, the conversation with Barack Obama about race, in which he represents law enforcement. Uh, and law enforcement wants us all to know that the phrase of mass, mass incarceration is triggering. And on the one hand, like, look, like, yes, like, from a sociological perspective, the phrase mass incarceration is a little bit um, imprecise. We, we, it's not that we, we don't like lock up masses of people on block as such. Instead, we have a type of focused policing that hyper-criminalizes and hyper-punishes people within specific communities, and that results in racially disproportionate outcomes. But it's very clear that James Comey is not intervening on that level. His problem <laughs> is that the phrase mass incarceration is offensive to people who carry guns for a living. And that's Again, this is this is another this is another way of looking at this is the same problem being repeated over and over again, right? Where he's like, it, it doesn't really matter. You can it doesn't matter what you do ultimately, even though part of part of the whole thing is framing yourself as making these very important moral decisions. And it doesn't matter what structures you're, you're implicit you're complicit in or what injustice you perpetuate, as long as you can like recuperate what you're doing in sufficiently reflective moralizing bullshit. Um, then you know that's a lesson. That's that's you being a leader, and it's that's the point at which it's like, oh, this is much more than just a, a, a like a get rich thing from him. It's actually an artifact that's dispositive of a really profound ideological like awfulness, right? Where it's just like, yeah, we're, we're going to have this into a mass incarceration, and we just need leaders to run it properly. Uh, and you know, maybe it, it, it's not surprising that we should hear that from the FBI, but. Um, you know, the idea that this person is somehow a resistance icon is fucking nonsense. Does he get into his defense while FBI director of the so-called Ferguson effect, the notion that protests against police brutality were driving the recent uptick in violent crime in some cities? Yeah, so this is where this comes in. This, this is actually the stuff with class incarceration and the, and the officer funerals and his conversation with Barack Obama all immediately arise in response to the, the so-called Georgetown speech in which he names the 
the uh, Ferguson effect. And again, it's it's one of these things where it's like. And when, this is when, he said, when he said there's a chill wind blowing through American law enforcement, that, that speech? Exactly. And, and it's very unclear what he actually means by it, right? He, 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 likes to, he, gets his, he, he shares his reasoning, and it's clear he's like, well, he, there's something happening with the virality of videos. And he, he just kind of sort of implies that maybe the very virality of videos is simultaneously causing police to be more brutal, maybe, but also to not do their job properly, and also maybe as a driver of... Uh, a brief spike in basically black-on-black homicides in various urban settings. But, like, the reality is that all these, like, all these abstractions, like the Ferguson effect or a chill wind, are, 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 are first off, like, just abstractions and don't really mean anything. They're like, he's operating off his gut. But also they're being wedded to statistical developments that are all very localized and very hard to interpret. So he's doing some really, like, really like crude fly by this fly by the seat of his pants criminology. Um, and then it's all being done in the service of basically vindicating law enforcement as inherently in America as being inherently well-intentioned and good. Um, Which was also another moment of him, uh, of him being sort of the, the noble, not going to be cowed by political pressure, James Comey that he likes to present himself as because he was sort of explicitly parting with the Obama administration's line on the issue by touting the Ferguson effect. And I think was, kind of implicitly at least reprimanded by either um, Loretta Lynch or someone else in the Obama administration. That's precisely right. He, 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 the title of the speech that he's motherfucker is so on brand, the title of the speech that he gives, the Georgetown speech with the Ferguson effect, is hard truths about law enforcement and race. And like, again, it... Hard truths with no like historical citations or, or sociological citations. There's a lot of debate over this, but many scholars, including those who wrote the National Academy of Sciences report on on mass incarceration, found that it had little to, you know, probably very little impact, some maybe, but but little impact on the hugely declining violent crime rates in recent decades. And the Ferguson effect got so his comments about the Ferguson effect understandably got so much attention. Like the most charitable thing we could say about like Jim Comey's speech in Georgetown. And look, it, it, it clearly that there's something to be said about how it was a very remarkable thing to be coming from law, American law enforcement in the first place. Other people had that conversation. I don't feel the need to do it. But like in terms of like his actual analytic rigor vis-a-vis this idea of a Ferguson effect or his making comments about, you know, like something is changing in the zeitgeist and, and like, and it, it has, it had all the rigor of like, you know, a David Brooks column where it's like, well, something's happening with technology and it's speaking something like it was completely, it was completely vapid and motivated, basically. It was moralizing, disguised, and with all these buzzwords. But that's the most charitable thing you could say about it. But when it's coming from someone who does have access to an abundance of data, who and, and who also has this platform and literally runs, you know, is the top cop in the country, it's something other than just, you know, idle op-ed pontification. It's a different type of, yeah. Yeah, the, 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 what he does with the Ferguson effect, shooting from the hip to endorse it, is accuse Black Lives Matter activists of indirect causing people to get murdered. Um, And and the flip side of this is his argument over over the history of mass incarceration being the reason for um, theretofore declining crime rates. And there's an amazing quote from he kind of faced with the criticism of, of, of organized black constituencies. He organizes a fictitious 
black constituency and ventriloquizes imaginary black people to speak on law enforcement's behalf. He, he, he says, there are tens of thousands of people who were not murdered or raped or robbed or intimidated because crime dropped in our country. The victims don't exist, so they can't form a constituency. They can't talk to the press. They can't talk to Congress. Somehow, we need to imagine their voices in the current debate about justice in this country as we strive to make ourselves more just. He's speaking on behalf of the silent majority of people who are like the silent majority of, of African-Americans who haven't been extrajudicially killed and who, you know, appreciate him greatly. Um, and, you know, like, never mind how that completely erases an abundance of voices of people who have all sorts of thoughts on law enforcement and, you know, we're conscious of how things have changed. I think about, like, Foreman's book, Locking Up Our Own or all that. Like, it just completely erases it. It's also all underwritten by this thing where it's like, James Comey just needs to tell you the truth. Like, it, he just – this odd conviction that he's that he's got a <laughs> – for some reason – yeah, Can't exactly. stop, won't something, stop. <laughs> something, something, he's on to something. He picked up something in the winds, um, a chill wind, uh, and now he's going to give this important speech. Something is going on, and he's going to testify to it. And this is also a huge James Comey theme where it's like he, he reaches some point, and he's got to take a stand and issue a statement. Now, he may be actually just speaking pure ideology. He may be saying nothing, and the consequences – or he may be saying nothing – or, and the word, the consequences of his doing it may be incredibly ruinous and repressive, uh, but at least... He, <laughs> Which we're going to get to in more detail later. <laughs> yeah, exactly, but, but, but at least he got to speak, right? It, it, it's a weird conviction on his part that, like, he has to speak in the first place, right? But also, like... A, he's like the lifestyle anarchist of... He's like the lifestyle anarchist of American law enforcement, just the, the, like the propaganda of the, bra- the noble deed. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. And, and without realizing, too, that, like, also oftentimes... There are two things that he like elides. One is that the consequences of these interventions have nothing whatsoever to do with his own intentions or even what he says, right? When he shows up in the election multiple times, fuck stuff up. But but because doesn't even like mainstream leadership pablum, um, doesn't it typically say that an important part of leadership is taking responsibility for the consequences of your actions, like the buck stops here, et cetera. Yeah, it's a weird thing where he actually has, he takes responsibility precisely to avoid it. Like, it's a weird, like, I'm going to step up and tell you all about this thing, and, you know, and, and, and maybe, and then when one of people, he, he blames people for this, for, for, for the tribalism of America for misunderstanding the, the, this, the, 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 the Georgetown speech. But it's like, dude, like, you're, you are in this position structurally, you are issuing these statements, they have an effect. Right, they have abundant effects. You can look at the polls when we get to the stuff what he did during the election. What he is simply speaking had an effect, but also like the weird sense of not just entitlement but moral mission to testify, combined with the fact that he assumes that everyone is waiting to hear from him. That's the thing. Too, that's like no one, really <laughs> which they finally are, which they finally are. They finally are. <laughs> sort this of. Right, this is the best outcome for him. But the, time and again, he's like, I, America needed to hear what I had to say. No, no one gave a fuck what he had to say. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Deport, Deprive, Extradite, 21st Century State Extremism 
by Nisha Kapoor. The extradition of terror suspects reveals the worst features of the security state. In 2012, five Muslim men were extradited from Britain to the U.S. to face terrorism-related charges. Fahad Hashmi was deported a few years before. Abid Nasir and Harun Aswat would follow shortly. They were subject to pre-trial incarceration for up to 17 years, police brutality, secret trials, secret evidence, long-term detention in solitary confinement, citizenship deprivation, and more. Deport, Deprive, Extradite draws on their stories as starting points to explore what they illuminate about the disciplinary features of state power and its securitizing conditions. In looking at these stories of Muslim men accused of terrorism-related offenses, Nisha Kapoor explores how these racialized subjects are dehumanized, made non-human both in terms of how they are represented and via the disciplinary techniques used to expel them. She explores how these cases illuminate and enable intensifying authoritarianism and the diminishment of democratic systems. Deport, Deprive, Extradite, 21st Century State Extremism by Nisha Kapoor. Out now from Verso Books. Let's talk about one of the defining historical events in the making of Jim Comey mythology, his 2004 hospital showdown with Alberto Gonzalez and Andrew Card. What what happened briefly, and what does Comey make of it? All right, so um, I'm going to allude to the work of of, of Glenn Glenn, Glenn Greenwald's written abundantly about this, so is Marcy Wheeler. You can read her blog, Empty Wheel. You can find out all about breaking this all down. But basically what it comes down to is... uh, a debate within the Bush administration uh, in which uh, uh, Comey is at the time serving as a, as a DAG uh, over the renewal of a illegal metadata slash warrantless gathering slash warrantless wiretapping initiative called Stellar Wind. Um, John Ashcroft, who is then the attorney general, has a sudden medical emergency and has to briefly be anesthetized and then be go under surgery and be in recovery. And Comey is, becomes acting attorney general in his stead. Um, quick background here that there have been numerous interactions, and, and Comey relates this, where he meets with people from the Bush administration who all come across like total fucking monsters. Like seriously, at some point, uh, Comey expresses some reservations vis-a-vis some surveillance or torture thing. It's a little, I forget what it was. And, and, and Dick Cheney's like, you just killed thousands of Americans, young man. Like literally, just like, <laughs> like, just like you, just, you just kill Americans, are gonna, thousands of Americans are going to die. And like, so like, you know, something I have in the back of my mind here is that there are different flavors of monsters in Washington, and then Comey is a different one from Cheney, but whatever. Um, in any event, the Bush administration uh, decides that they want to – Ashcroft has been holding out vis-a-vis some specific aspects of this surveillance program, which have to do with on warrantless metadata gathering. Uh, it gets pretty complicated, but the White House sends Alberto Gonzalez – to John Ashcroft's bedside as he is recovering from this major like heart infarction or something like that to try and get him to sign off on an automatic renewal of the Stellar Wind program, which he had previously refused to uh, co-sign because it was illegal. And uh, <laughs> Jim Comey um, 
is there, rushes to the rushes to the hospital to intercept Alberto Gonzalez. I think Bob Mueller is there too. And together they have this showdown where John Ashcroft first off tells Alberto Gonzalez to get fucked, uh, and then is like, "Well, I'm not actually Attorney General. Uh, Jim Comey is, and he's acting Attorney General, and and of course Comey isn't going to sign anything." Um, and like, look, like yes, like this is high Washington drama. It's a you know, it's a pretty intense story. Um, it's also happening against the backdrop of an entire battery of massively invasive surveillance and other initiatives, which Jim Coney totally co-signed. So, like, there's some has way no problem which, with. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, and the, the and the same go and the same goes for for torture. You you write it. it uh, it's much the same when it comes to Comey's approval of the 13 enhanced interrogation measures put to him by the Bush administration. CA by this point, April of 2005. Comey has already finalized plans to leave the DOJ, and while he views the techniques themselves as awful and describes them in gruesome, disgusted detail, he still feels compelled to note that they are technically legal. It, it seems like his main concern is to be morally aloof of the very monstrous national security state policies that he is the, at the very center of administering, uh, or as his wife puts it, to, to not be the torture guy. That's exactly right. In In a nutshell, right, he's like... Weirdly enough, his own awareness about participation in awful is like that's 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 the silver lining of him having done it is that he gets to tell he gets to tell us about it uh, and, and he gets to ask us well what type of decision would you make if you had to endorse these chokeholds or these torture methods versus these ones and my answer is like don't be there in the first place right <laughs> like there's a weird way in which like he becomes the handmaiden of these awful forced choices that shouldn't exist in the first place, but seems to celebrate that as his own moral witness. And, you know, I, I, I think the, the, appropriate, the appropriate answer to that is just not play in the first place. Let's move on to the penultimate act in this terrible play that we've all been forced to watch, Clockwork Orange style. Um, Comey, obviously, is now a hero to many in the resistance, but he did so much to tank Clinton's candidacy. How does he explain his extraordinary and institutionally speaking, entirely abnormal actions. First, in denouncing Clinton when he announced the emails investigation would be closed without charges. And second, when he announced that Anthony Weiner had, or when he informed Congress, which was then publicly announced, I guess is how it played out, that that Anthony Weiner being Anthony Weiner had caused the investigation to be reopened just before the election, even though unsurprisingly, the investigation ultimately found Nothing. How does how does he explain this like utterly contemptible behavior? <laughs> so, it takes him like it takes like sixty seventy pages to do this. I would just like my my quick like cutting through the bullshit read on this is that he just kept on feeling compelled that you know America needed to know what Jim Comey was going through and the decisions he was making, right? Where so he like gets super in his head, right? Much in the same way as with like the Martha Stewart thing, being like, well, how am I going to treat her if I wouldn't treat this other person like this? And I need to, people need to know where the Justice Department stands. And like, no, people don't need to know. But 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 he. Uh, uh, he needed to testify. In terms of more specifics, like basically, look, like if Hillary Clinton is under investigation for, I think what any reasonable person would say is some some really ridiculously reckless uh, internet security practices, where like she was running all these servers out of her basement, uh, and people were communicating in variously insufficiently oblique ways about actual classified material, and this wasn't, and, and so there was an investigation of that, and of course it's political, right? But um, 
Comey is, 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 is tasked with supervising this, and he understands that it's going to, whatever the outcome is going to be, it's going to be very bad, uh, but that he reaches the conclusion that he's not going to be, uh, that he's not going to be issuing charges because there was no necessarily illegal wrongdoing there, right? Um, Which is the then, role of law enforcement to investigate crimes, not to investigate unsavory or stupid behavior. Crimes, is, that's law enforcement's job. Exactly. I mean, like, it, it, this is like, it's, what's weird about this one, too, is that, and this, there are some callbacks to the Martha Stewart thing, is that this is one one of those situations where there's clearly some sort of wrongdoing happening in some chain, or at least there's, there's a situation where there's abundant possibility for wrongdoing. And so the role of law enforcement in this case, as with many white-collar investigations, the extent to which those actually happen, is going into a situation, attempting to discover not just what the wrongdoing was in the sort of investigatory role, but trying to track who was aware of it and who committed it, because intentionality does matter in these things, supposedly. Um, and he's going to be wrapping this up when finally he gets word of some classified information that may or may not indicate that later on, and he literally phrases it like decades from now, may throw doubt upon the independence of Attorney General Loretta Lynch in this matter. And that's why he goes public. He cuts Loretta Lynch out, uh, and he just like says he... And he issues this exquisitely complicated statement about this is the first time where he's like, well, you know, Hillary Clinton did this thing that was a little bit reckless, but there's nothing illegal here. And, and again, like he, he, he's, he's thinking about the, um, the optics of the FBI's reputation decades down the line, and that combined with his own desire to make sure that everyone knows what decisions he's facing. And he sends all these group emails to the FBI, which he reproduces in the, in the book, too. They're pretty fucking boring. Uh, being like, well, this is what I had to think about. And he even apologizes for using the pronoun I so much at one point, which is a big tell, I think. <laughs> um, so he just, like, says his piece. And, of course, like, no one, no normal person, like, there's, there's no person who is not, you know, who doesn't wear, who doesn't, like, shower with a lanyard on, who saw that and was thinking, oh, yeah, what's at stake here is a very important question of division of powers and optics of the FBI vis-a-vis the Justice Department. And maybe 10 years from now, you know, who knows? <laughs> we have to preserve the reputational integrity of the FBI as an honest power broker. And, like, no one thought that. All they saw was Jim Comey sitting in front of a camera wearing a gold tie. He, very, he spent a lot of time like, I didn't want to wear red or blue because those would be politically signaling. Um, just being like, oh, something bad's happening. And, of course, that's not Clinton. And then, of course, he does it again. He makes the exact same same series of um, uh, mistakes when it turns out that there's a like a <laughs> week Andy, before the election. Exactly, a week before the election. This is like, it's hilarious because like now we have Anthony Weiner's laptop, and I'm like thinking like, do they like, how heavily did they Purell this thing before they go through it? But he's like, but Anthony Weiner's laptop for whatever <sighs> fucking reason has backups of all these and backups of many of the emails that were previously missing in this investigation. And he's like, why well, we we need to look into this thing now too? And it's like, dude. Like, I understand that you were facing shitty, like, decisions, but, like, your desire to vindicate your own sense of moral integrity, which just so happened to also be super self-aggrandizing, um, really didn't factor pro- – wasn't metabolized in any way that you intended it to be by the American electorate and was instead seen, I think, correctly as this dude intervening in the process to fuck up Hillary's chances, which it certainly absolutely did. But this has been amazingly – laundered in the popular liberal memory as Russia did it. Yeah. Comey did it. <laughs> yeah, no, he totally did it. And, and, and like, but also, and this is like coexisting, like the other, like there's a constitutive ideological problem here, right? And this, Comey is, Comey is, 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 is so fucked up in it. And I think this is probably what's going on with the, with the general like liberal resistance thing too, is this conviction that the FBI is somehow quote unquote apolitical. 
right? And Comey's like, I had to intervene, you know, like, I, and he has this weird thing, he's like, both parties were going to hate me, and that's now I knew I was going to be doing something right. And, like, maybe sometimes both parties are, right? <laughs> so when it comes to despising certain people, but independently of that, he seems to think that the purpose of the FBI is basically, or he seems to claim that the purpose of the FBI is a non-ideological law enforcement referee for the American, for American democracy itself. And, I mean, this is the point where it's like you want to do a Zizek voice and be like, this is the most pure ideology of them all, because, number one, like, the history of the FBI is as America's political police, right, from the get-go. Like, he likes to talk about the mafia, and everyone likes to talk about the mafia because the mafia are very clearly bad. But the purpose of the FBI has always been about, like, labor politics, about counterintelligence, so, like, against foreign powers, about disrupting domestic activist organizing. Like, it's always been the political police. But also, and more broadly, like, you know, policing itself is generally pretty fucking political. But finally, there is nothing more political than what Comey admits to doing, which is being like, well, what's my decision going to play out, mean for the, my institution's reputation when Hillary Clinton is, is president? And at that point, if he, yeah, if he's weighing these scenarios, you can't get more political than that. And someone actually, he actually has a staffer who's a young woman who he doesn't name and who I may or may not exist, who the fuck knows, be like, aren't you a little worried about this? And maybe, you know, like, and then he, he has this like giant block of text being like, well, you know, if I had been in a different decision-making environment where I had had other thoughts that may have come to me, then maybe possibly I would have considered doing something different than what I may have done. And it's like, dude, you made a decision, you fucked up, just own it, and he doesn't. Let's move to the, the closing act, which is Trump, which is why people are buying this book. And if I get this right, Comey compares Trump to the demands made by mafiosos for personal loyalty to this to his own prizing of this higher loyalty to to truth. Yeah. Is that right? That's exactly right. Like all this all this stuff like that's been happening earlier in the book. He's been like you know like he's laying out like this is what happens about in the mafia. This is how like mafia swear loyalty to each other, and there's no such thing as truth in mafia land. And the life begins with a lie. And you're always it's a mafia. The mafia world is always about people bending truth to serve the interests of one particular venal rapacious man at the center of it. And you're like obviously he's talking about Trump. This is exactly the thing that he like cashes out in the last bit of the book, where he's like Trump keeps asking me for loyalty. He basically wants me to kiss his pinky ring, and I keep on being like, well, no, I'm going to be honest and give you honest loyalty, etc. So, like, he, he basically, his basic claim is that uh, a mafia don is now, the, is now the president of the United States, and uh, fuck the FBI, which is in some ways a kind of, like, look, there's, there, there's some really dark humor going on here, right? <laughs> like, there is some way in which, like, the, like, it's kind of funny that the nemesis... Yeah, he, he, is, does, yeah, he yeah. does take pretty meticulous notes. He takes pretty, you write that he takes pretty meticulous notes on his interactions with Trump, and his descriptions are pretty spot on. Yeah, there's no, I think there's, that, that's like one thing, like the Trump camp is being like, this book, like these latter chapters are totally incorrect and fabrications. Uh, I would challenge anyone to read those, those chapters and not think that this is a pretty dead on, like, expression. Like, this also, like, look, like, this is one of the takeaways from it. Like, when, in these latter chapters, where Comey is relaying his notes of these encounters, like, sure, it's still Jim Comey, he's still an asshole, he still has all these ideological problems, but you get the sense that this man has a mind like a steel fucking trap when it comes to writing down what other people do and observing their actions and documenting them in terms of legal liability. Like, this is like, this sort of like, and like there's abundant comedy in these latter chapters, right? Because it's like, Jim Comey is this self-serious, dour, like, all-American guy who's been talking about, like, Mayberry and shit. And, like, you know, like, he really is, like, aw shucks, Boy Scout 
out. And then, you know, Trump wanders in and Trump like doesn't know how to use his silverware and is constantly obsessed with the P tape and is basically, you know, like this mafiosi asshole. Uh, and it's kind of hilarious to watch Jim Comey like, you know, hide in behind curtains or like try and avoid getting hugged or trying not to like use words Trump doesn't understand. Like it's pretty fucking funny to see Comey get humiliated like this. But the more deeper and distressing thing to think about is that both these men, both Trump and Comey, though they may deserve each other morally, are also like perfect apex predators produced by these simultaneously very different but also extremely similar ecosystems, namely American law enforcement and the FBI on the one hand, and the other being like real estate, like charlatanry on the other. And that's the point at which like the Bill Valley chapters are both surreal and very funny, but they're also sort of chilly in the sense they're chilling in the sense you're like, oh, wow, wow, a lot of things are coming down to this encounter between these two people who have, who are both separately, but very but both entirely invested in ideas of dominance, in control, uh, in humiliation, and causing other people suffering. Um, and to see them both, like one's, you know, like this, this comic clown joke, and Comey is his other type of contempt, contemptible figure, but seeing them together and realizing, like, how the lives of millions of people kind of can hinge on their shit is a pretty terrifying thought. I guess our task is to put forward a political proposal that offers the possibility of not being eaten by either of them. Yeah. I think that's, that's yeah, I think that's, that, that's basically there's kind of be some other way that doesn't involve either being, you know, the title of the piece is Pig or Prig, right? And like, you know, part of the pun here is that actually those things can scan both ways. Maybe we could do something that doesn't involve, maybe, maybe instead of like making the forced choice be mafiosi or cops, we do neither mafiosi nor cops. Uh, and think of something other than that, because, um, like if the best if the best moral vision that we have for America is the guy who thinks that mass incarceration can basically be absolved by like a feeling like a heartfelt essay that people write you know in their FBI training, um, maybe that's not the best solution to Trump either. I mean, like uh, more gradually, people should steal his book. Like yeah, <laughs> like, like go ahead, like like enjoy. I, I, I'm trying not to like like the, the last chapters of the comic book are kind of fun. Like go ahead, pirate it, get it from your library. Uh, maybe don't give him your money because he's going to be fine. But, uh, but yeah. Patrick Blanchfield, thanks so much for coming back on. Thanks, it's a pleasure. Patrick Blanchfield is a freelance writer and associate faculty member at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that the police, the judiciary, and the administration are not the representatives of a civil society which administers its own universal interests in them and through them, they are the representatives of the state and their task is to administer the state against civil society. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, usually twice a week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. And please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. 
If you listen on iTunes, please leave us a nice review there. It does feed the Apple Borg, but it also helps put us in touch with new listeners. What also helps put us in touch with new listeners is you telling your friends, families, strangers, whoever, about the show. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. And last but by no means least, please make a contribution at patreon.com slash the dig to keep this operation going. Even a few bucks a month is a big help. Hi, this is Carter Moon. Um, I have been a longtime listener of The Dig, but I've only been supporting them on uh, Patreon for a little while. Uh, but I've been really happy to do that. Um, when I really look at all the different podcasts I listen to, uh, there's no other show that is as uh, robust and uh, thorough as The Dig. I think Dan Denver is one of the most uh, well-read and thoughtful interview interviewers on the left, um, and he uh, just does a great job bringing together academics and activists under the same tent and uh, legitimizes all of them. Uh, it's a phenomenal show. Uh, we need more independent media like The Dig, uh, to take down the capital, capitalist class. Uh, so thank you, Daniel, for all you do, and uh, support the show.